0: This is Gareth Southgate, and this is the Three Lions Podcast.
1: Well, here
2: we are then, episode 20 of the Three Lions Podcast. A little sooner than I'd expected, but I hope I've got something that you're going to enjoy. My name's Russell Osborne, and when I took over the reins of this podcast, I had ideas of what direction I'd like to take it in. I'm an England fan. I wanted to hear from England fans, give them a voice, and try and give some coverage to as many of the teams that wear those three lions on the shirt. Interviewing the current England manager, Gareth Southgate, wasn't really on my radar. But the podcast has been picked up by the ears of the FA and I was very fortunate to be invited to a fans forum by Andy Walker, Senior Communications Manager for England. So many thanks to him and the England Supporters Club. So quick reshuffling of work, organising childcare, trip to Maplin to take advantage of their closing down sale for some portable recording equipment, check tyres on my car and I was on my way to Walsall. Here I am then at Walsall's Bescott Stadium on a damp, drizzly grey afternoon, not nice. Sat in my car in the car park. The home serve stand is straight ahead of me with the main reception just beneath it with sponsors Banks Stadium either side. It's a stadium I've passed many a time on the M6 but never really had the pleasure of. Now, this is actually going to be a venue for one of the forthcoming under-17s European Championships as I think Yeah, I mentioned that in the last podcast. Anyway, what am I doing here? There is an England supporters fan forum being held here in the Savoy Lounge. Sounds very grand. It's an opportunity for supporters going to Russia to ask questions and seek advice from people who have been to some of the host venues. Hopefully, in the current climate, it's going to put some minds at ease. And word is, there's going to be some special names going to be in attendance, along with plenty of England fans. Right, let's go. Let's see who'll speak to me. The evening was hosted by former Lioness Alex Scott, more from her later, but it began with a panel of three, all who have been out to Russia on a regular basis over the last six months on fact-finding missions, checking out the cities, the grounds, the facilities, liaising not just with the Russian counterparts, but with Tunisian Panamanian and Belgian too. Now They were Harpreet Robertson, head of the England Supporters Club, Steve Evans, safety and security advisor, working with the FA's head of teams and corporate security, and lastly, Roger Evans, associate director of the UK Football Policing Unit. The situation in Russia at the moment is on many minds, and Roger Evans was keen to give his opinion and experience on how it's been in the past with World Cups and how this one is likely to pan out, and was keen to put minds at ease and also give advice.
3: In the next few weeks, um, in Brazil, you're all going to be kidnapped, you're going to be shot, you're going to be robbed. Uh, didn't happen. Uh, Ukraine, all going to be attacked by neo-fascist hooligan groups. Didn't happen. South Africa, you're gonna be kidnapped, raped, murdered, burnt, given parking tickets, what have you. Didn't happen. It's an emerging trend here, isn't there, this, this stuff. You will undoubtedly, over the next few weeks, be fed a menu of stuff by various uh, media outlets. Shock, horror, you know what it's like. This is what they always do. That's what sells newspapers. All, uh, <coughs> I think the most important thing that came across, we went for pre-visits, in end of February, beginning of March, um, we met up with uh, police law enforcement uh, individuals, and we all agreed that they're probably three of the most positive and fruitful meetings with uh, the cops in the, the three host cities. And the thing that came through was they were, were pains to say, well, this is going to be a festival of football. It's, you know, it's not about uh, a big police presence, although undoubtedly there will be. Simply because that's the way they police in Russia. So if you're going out there and you see lots of cops or paramilitary types, don't be alarmed. That's the way they do it. That's the way they, they do it. But they were very keen to say how welcome uh, English supporters will, will be there. And the three, Volgograd, Nizhny Novgorod, and Kaliningrad. Uh, they're not used to British tourists. I don't think they're used to tourists at all. Uh, they are very keen, the people in those cities are very keen to see you and to to make you welcome. There is one note of caution that I would say, particularly about Volgograd. For those of you who are keen on a bit of history, uh, it was uh, Stalingrad. It was the site of a, an epic battle in the Second World War. Uh, and there are some spectacular uh, monuments there, Um, the most obvious one is uh, Motherland Calls, a huge, huge statue there. Um, And I do know that there are certain people amongst the English support that like to drape flags about the place. Uh, St George's flags blazoned wherever you come from, whether it be Bristol Rovers or Lincoln City or Wharton or wherever. Um, I would just Caution on the Second World War, or the Great Patriotic War as it's known in Russia, is scarred into uh, the, 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 the national psyche over there. For every two Americans that were killed in the Second World War, 184 Russians died. It's a huge thing to the people in Russia and in Volgograd in particular. So, if I was going to say anything to you, take it away and tell your friends, please bear that in mind because. If you think it's fun, or if, you, if you're just having a good time, please bear in mind the, uh, the deep psychological scar that still is with the Russian people as a result of that. Stadia, we've been to all three stages, and they were all covered with snow, which meant it somewhat difficult to try and imagine what they were like. But well, I went, to, as I said, to the Confederations Cup last year. So you've got an idea. If you're not used to Cyrillic script, it's a bit of a brain teaser but all the FIFA stuff will, will all be signed in English. Their security is very, very tight. For those of you that travel by aircraft, um, it's more stringent than, than going onto a plane. You have your ID checked, you have your ticket checked, you then go through a search regime, which is the same at all the, the FIFA stadiums, and it's, occasions quite an intimate personal search as well if you've got a mobile phone and or a camera they'll ask you to turn it on why that is I don't know but it's obviously a reason for it to prove that it actually is that and you'll go there and it takes quite a long time so the same old story get there nice and early uh, because it worked all right uh, during the Confed Cup but people tend to turn up a bit later for the tournaments they're having a beer and they're enjoying the envir- uh, the atmosphere outside. So getting there early because of that. And also there are incredibly long walks to, to all the stadia that we went to. Uh, you can see it, you can see the building over there. You think you've got to walk that way because they've all the security the you can walk around. And I think getting into uh, the Spartak Stadium what was about two hundred meters that way it was about a kilometre and a half walk round, and having patients going through the security. But apart from that, no, it's, it's it'll be interesting. I've, like I said, been out there four times. It is an experience.
2: A question brought up from the audience referred back to the trouble in Marseille during Euro twenty sixteen, and should the need arise, would there be easy access to UK consular? The Foreign Office head of World Cup team. Tom Regan was on hand to answer this and also give feedback and experience on Premier League teams who have headed out to Russia in recent European campaigns.
4: Specifically on that point, our plan is that we're going to have a mobile British Embassy that will be in the cities that England are playing in throughout the tournament. So we're going to have one in Volgograd, Nizhny uh, and Kaliningrad and then depending on how England get on we'll then have a team. Uh, that follows the fans and, and the team round. Um, in terms of, kind of, I wasn't in Marseille, but we watched the same scenes and were frankly, you know, horrified. So, since since Marseille, we've had five Premier League teams come out to Russia. I don't want to give false assurance, but we've had about two and a half thousand British fans who've come out since. We've had minor issues with people losing their passports, but we haven't had those kind of horrendous scenes again. So. Um, As Roger says, we think that the Russians want the tournament to go really well. They want it to be a spectacle that demonstrates they can deliver a great tournament, and we hope that that extends to the fact that we don't see a repeat of that again. I should probably do a plug for our travel advice, which I'm sure all of you are kind of pretty familiar with, but we have our Beyond The Ball campaign, which is foreign office advice for England fans who are thinking about going out. And then also we have our travel advice. We check that every day. So if we've got any updated advice, um, that's the best place to find out what the UK government think about a particular thing. So you can get alerts through to your smartphones, you can get through to an email, and it also says if you've got a problem in Kaliningrad or Nizhny, this is how you can access the consular services as well. Yeah.
2: That Be On The Ball campaign that Tom mentioned can be found on social media using the hashtag be on the ball and they can be found on Twitter and Facebook by searching at FCO travel or check the website gov.uk forward slash Russia 2018 now with around 70 England supporters listening in the room it was a good opportunity to speak with them and get a feel for the team and how far they can go I posed the question if we were to play Tunisia tomorrow
1: who would be in your team? CJ Joyner um, from Coventry (laughs) Pickford first choice. My personal preference, I would rather see Pope in the squad, but I think the uh, the bridge has uh, been burnt on that now for the summer. I think he's one more for you know, the future tournaments. Um, I think we've got to take Joe Hart um, with that experience. Look at Rob Green in the past. He made up the state. We had David James come in. We don't have that, that this time around if Hart's not there. So I think Hart should be there. Butland, second choice.
3: Uh, I'm James. Uh, I'm from Wolverhampton. I'm Wolvesham. I think Southgate's got some tough choices to make with the defence, there's a speculation left back saying Ryan Sesson should get the share, but I just think this tournament's probably one too soon, for him he's won the Championship Player of the Year, which is a, a good thing for an English player to win. Uh, but I think Ashley Young, Ryan Bertrand and uh, Danny Rose have all had good seasons when, they, when they've been on the pitch. Um, and then you've got on the right side you've got Joe Gomez who can play in right back, Kyle Walker. Uh, there's just a lot of options there this, this time. Um, Would you have you, your back three? Yeah, I think he's got to stick with the back three and the, the wing backs. Um, I wasn't a fan of Walker in the back three, but he did play really well in the, uh, the March friendlies. So maybe, maybe keep with that or tinker with it in the two June friendlies. But we've got to go to a tournament this time knowing what our strongest side is.
2: Hi, I'm Thomas Smith uh, from Leicestershire. Midfield I'd have uh, Eric Dyer
5: holding, um, and then in front of him Oxlade-Chamberlain and Lingard. And then I'd have uh, Sterling and Rashford either side. Yeah, My name is Lee, I'm a Birmingham City fan from Birmingham myself. And so if they woke up, when when it comes around the Tunisia game, I think I would start with Harry Kane up front, but I'd do it as a front three, so I'd have, outside him, I'd have Sterling one side, and someone like Rashford the other, so we've got the pace on the wings, that'll run at players, cause them problems, can get in behind, but you've got a big number nine in Harry Kane that's going to win the headers, he can finish a chance if he makes it, from set. I know the last year some of his set players weren't good, but I think penalties, he's the kind of man you want taking them, and free kicks is always an option amongst the other players in the team as well, and I think he's the kind of player that if he has a good tournament, England will have a good tournament, Not to put too much pressure on him, but he's one of those players that if he gets far in, he he can turn a nation round, get us us far in at the the World Cup.
1: I'm uh, Carl Fox from Birmingham. For the Tunisia game, I would start maybe with Harry Kane and Jamie Vardy up front with two fast wingers on each side, getting the balls in. Jamie Vardy's proven lately he's finding the back of the net again. And then for goals, you've got Kane, who's a natural finisher, and then Vardy, who loves to just chase every loose ball. So I think maybe get loose balls capitalised on by Kane and you can slot them in
2: where do you see us going in the World Cup obviously Russia but, but where do you see us progressing through
1: Gary Owen Burton on trend. Um I think we'll probably get to the quarters because that's when I'm booked to come home so uh, I've been uh, quite successful in previous tournaments where I've come home after the second round and I've got it right every time
2: how far do you think we can go Wow,
5: <laughs> there's always it's the a million, ante- million dollar question. <laughs> yeah, there's always the anticipation going into it. I'm hoping if you get to the quarters, then it's look at the draw, a- anyone could beat anyone in the day. But I think getting out of the groups, getting through the round of 16, I mean, the draw if, you, if you're going to pick a draw, that's the kind of draw you'd want. We've got a group that this team should get out of, and then round of 16 as well. The group that we could play in the round of 16, one of those teams is one that you'd fancy your chances in the day. And then, like I say, if you get to the quarter final, in quarterfinal like, is where I expect us to get, and then, like I say, any, you could get anywhere from there. But quarterfinal is my hopes at minimum, bare at minimum.
2: Any thoughts for the World Cup? Quite optimistic.
5: Um, getting
2: through the group, we're looking to probably face either Colombia or uh, Poland, which is again winnable, and perhaps Japan, uh, depending on how their group goes. Obviously, all going to be tough matches. we they going qualify for the World Cup. Um, yeah, quite optimistic. We can maybe at least make the quarterfinals.
1: Again, quarterfinals. We usually get to that marker. Usually, hopefully, with this generation of players, the ability in them, we can maybe take it to the next step. Again, it's look at the draw. So, hopefully, we can get to a semi-final and take it from there. I think we're going to go out in the quarters. I think if we get through our group, we should beat one of, I think it's Japan, Colombia or Poland. Um, If we get through the group, we should beat one of them. Then we've got probably Brazil, Mexico or Germany. I think if we play Germany, we've got more of a, you know, Brazil or Germany, I'd rather play Germany. I'd rather rather play them um, over Brazil. I think Brazil would wipe the floor with us. I think Germany would wipe the floors a little bit less. Um, but if we get a win there we're through to the semis and you know that means we've got right the way through to the final weekend because we've got a third place playoff so that's that's how you look at it in theory Belgium could do what they want to us because in theory both of us should get six points by then we we, we could get away with just playing well once we could get away with, better, with playing better than what we should do once and that's in that quarter final and then we could be there right the way through to the, um, the, last, the last weekend what's to think you like that. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Seems the general consensus is we'll make it through the group stage and bow out somewhere between the quarterfinal and the final, hopefully. There was then a break in the evening where I got an opportunity to sit down with host for the evening, Alex Scott. So I'd like to welcome Alex Scott to the Three Lions podcast here at the England Fans Forum
6: Thank you for having me
2: (laughs) Are you welcome Alex, I should say 140 caps and and 12 goals for the Lionesses and currently at Arsenal
6: Yes, still uh, two months two more months
2: Until you hang up your boots
6: Yes, officially, so retired from England last September and then yeah, seeing out this season with Arsenal, so hopefully it ends on a high
2: Let's hope so, from an Arsenal sports perspective
6: (laughs) (laughs) 140
2: caps for England what was your highlight for those 140 caps?
6: That's a really hard question it's hard to pinpoint one Um, I think the dream for me growing up in the east end of London was always to play for England so to be able to go on and do Played for 140 times is just it still amazes me actually. So I remember playing in my 100th game and I actually couldn't believe it. And then 140 to be England's second most cap player, male or female. It's just yeah, I think those sort of things when you're playing, I don't count how many caps I've got. So it's not until you actually retire and people tell you those sort of stats that you're like, Oh wow, did I, that's actually me, I did that. Um, but yeah, it was an absolute dream playing for England and I still look back. And I just can't believe it. Yeah.
2: And do the lionesses get physical caps the same as the men seniors? Have you got 140 <laughs> caps? Caps at home.
6: You don't actually get a cap every single time you play. So you get. Um, so I got a hundred, a special one, a gold one, um, and then every tournament you play in, you get a cap, and it's got all the games that you played in that tournament. And I actually got sent one last week from UEFA to congratulate me on my hundredth cap. Um, so yeah, you don't have hundred and forty caps, um, but I think I've got about seven. Yeah.
2: Oh, okay. Well, there's something I've learned. Yeah. So France next year um, for the the Lionesses and the World Cup. Up. what are your thoughts obviously we're not there yet but what are your yeah. thoughts going forward following the, the re- t- two recent games
6: oh, geez. well to believe that we're ranked number two in the world now um, we're obviously a team going into that tournament that going to be placed as one of the favourites I suppose behind uh, France obviously the hosts but I actually believe that we can go over there and medal um, we've medaled at a world cup before obviously the bronze medal but being ranked number two in the world there's only one place to go and you know sometimes that can be the hardest one because it's like those little bits that little bit extras that you you need to work on but I think looking at the current squad and the youngsters coming through I honestly believe that we can do something special in France, I really do.
2: And Phil Neville coming in to yeah. take over as top man, yep. what, what are your thoughts on Phil?
6: Oh, I like what I've seen so far, I think the team is starting to get his identity under him, um, kind of playing out through the back, playing through the middle, um, the last game at St Mary's was obviously frustrating for the England team, how Wales came out and defended but when you're at number two in the world that's what you're going to find now. Um, when you go and play the likes of France and Germany the games will be more open but it's going to find those games against the lower ranked nations the hardest ones sometimes so it's finding a way to open them sorts of teams up but no, I think Phil brought in a freshness in terms of um, the group and he's not scared he comes out kind of in women's football with a clean slate so he doesn't know previous stories, the personalities, it's all new to him so he's going and I feel like the players are now stepping up because they believe that they can get picked Um, so it's putting everyone on a clean slate and I think that's the freshness
2: and you mentioned there growing up in the, was it the East End of London, who was your inspiration?
6: Oh for me it was Ian Wright, always absolutely loved it I think that's the difference now with women's football I suppose youngsters growing up they have female role models to aspire to be like but for me I saw for Arsenal when I was eight years old and I just love going in and seeing him right here just his smile was so infectious and you could see how much he just loved playing football. He didn't care about anything else about playing football and that's what absolutely I loved and why I started and why I still do actually what I do for the next two months because I've absolutely, I love every moment.
2: Well, we wish you all the best for those those final two months. What, what are your plans after that?
6: Oh, well, hopefully going to the media side full-time, fingers crossed. It's been going well over the last couple of years. So, yeah, it's been hard juggling it. Sometimes it's been tired, but... Hopefully it makes a transition smooth for life afterwards.
2: Well, thank you very much for talking to us on the Three Lines podcast. Thank
6: you. so much.
2: The room then welcomed in England manager Gareth Southgate and Darius Vassell, who sat with Alex Scott for an informative 45-minute Q&A session. I've picked out some of the parts I hope you'll find interesting, and this will hopefully give you a flavour of the evening.
6: Welcome welcome, guys. We do have a lot of questions obviously sent in by everyone this evening, so I'll get straight to it. Gareth, the first one is to you. A popular YouTube clip amongst supporters is of the national anthem being played at Euro 1996, when you, Tony Adams and Stuart Pearce in particular are belting it out and looking like you really care to be representing England. As England manager, do you try and encourage the current crop of players to sing the national anthem?
0: Well, I I think it's uh, very much individual choice. Um, But our team very much felt that was an important thing for us. And the current team do as well. Um, I mean, I think you'll have done some of this with the Lionesses in terms of trying to give the players some ownership of what they believe is right and the way they want to behave as a team. Um, And when we put it to our last, two things came out, really. The first was that they wanted to sing the National Anthem. And they felt that should be part of their sort of player charter, if you like. And the second was that they wanted to go over to the fans at the end of the game, which had kind of slipped away, I think, over the years. Um, You know, whatever the result, all the players, all the staff over to the supporters. Um, So they were two things which, you know, we were quite keen to kind of push, but it's always better if it comes up as the player's decision in the end as well. Um, And I think it is a, for me, it was a huge thing, um, Everybody's journey to playing for England is different and um, our team now is really diverse and and everybody has different views and uh, meaning for them of playing for England. Um, But the National Anthem is something that kind of bonds the team together and is as important as as is the shirt. So um, I, I always felt that was a great moment for me as a player. It was one of the proudest things was to stand there at Wembley and sing it. Um, or, or abroad, but there was something special about doing it at Wembley as well. Um, so I was really pleased that the players felt the same way. Still,
6: I used to love singing the national anthem, but like you said, I actually used to get goosebumps every single time. 140 caps, it never got on. And I felt that was my moment. I was ready. Once that anthem was done, I was then ready to go and play for England. Do I, did you sing? Um, I didn't sing it,
7: no, but during the national anthem, I used to use that moment um, as a player, just to soak it all in, gather my thoughts, just listen to my heartbeat, just make sure it's going a little bit slower. Um, I was nervous, you know, at times um, as a player and I felt during that moment, um, <laughs> that bit of respect that you're getting together as a team, uh, I got to, you know, just refocus, realign my thoughts, you know, and I was one of those that used to take those moments to just concentrate on the game and make sure, you know, I know what I'm doing and know when the, the referee listen I think
0: that's an important thing as well because um, just because people don't sing doesn't mean they don't care and uh, we saw uh, I went out to Brazil for the last World Cup and Brazil and Chile were so emotional in the anthem but actually I think Brazil in the end were too hyped up um, and when they lost to Germany they were so hyped by the, by the anthem and the thing in the stadium that they almost couldn't play so I think as a player you've got to recognise what works for you uh, and in that moment, you know, I, I needed to get up, but I only had to kick people, you know, he had to come and <laughs> beat people and, and be in a different mental place than I was. So. I suppose
6: it's similar in the changing room as well. You, you kind of know who you can bounce off of. You have the people that like to stay quiet before a game, and you have the people that like to be loud. But well, it's each to their own. Like I said, it's different ways of preparing, but it's actually mm. knowing your players and what's right for which one. We go on to the next question, Darius. Describe how you received your call-up to the England squad for the 2002 World Cup and who was the first person you told? OK, um, I
7: remember that. Uh, I got a phone call before it was announced on Sky, um, saying that I might or there was a big chance that I was going to get in and that phone call was from Sven. Um, so I believed I was probably going to get in. But um, it was written on Sky, uh, you know, I had a right at the bottom of the screen. So it was official then for me. Obviously, that's what we all sort of go by, sort of gospel now, right. especially in our family anyway. But um, yeah, it was official. The first person I told, there wasn't no need to tell anybody. The phone started ringing. People were telling me, and i was saying, yeah, I know, I'm in." Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, but now, very special moment. But it's one of those where I've got to face reality. I look at the big picture. Right, I've got to get myself sorted. I'm going to the World Cup now. Um, it's a big opportunity, uh, not only for myself but for the team. Uh, I've got to get myself in gear and. You know, have a break, so it was the end of the season, so have a break, go away with the England team, have a nice break and get myself fit, ready for the World Cup. So, um, the manager actually told me, I don't know if he told me because he wasn't sure how it was going to take or anything like that, he did think I'd Scott, Sky, but he felt that he needed to ring me and let me know. That's the way I found out. Okay.
6: Gareth, we've got a captain question for you. How will you decide who will be England captain? Will you rotate as you have done between Jordan and Harry?
0: Uh, No, I don't think we'll rotate for the finals. Um, But it's been—I've been quite interested in the end how much of a fascination it is for um, for everybody um, the captaincy. I mean, it it is important and it is an honour. So I certainly never wanted to dilute the honour. But also, it's been there's been too much burden on the captain over the years with England and. Uh, even the small things of doing the press conferences the day before a game was always the captain um, and I know when I was a captain of the club sometimes you were looking for a bit of help um, from other players just to take some of the load off you know you didn't have I got to be the one always doing the media always doing the commercial things always doing the community <coughs> things so I think it's really important that we, we started to spread the responsibility a bit and we needed to develop more leaders in the group um, and sometimes developing leaders, um, part of that is just giving them opportunity to lead and being situations that are, they're a little bit uncomfortable. Um, so that's what we've tried to do. And now what's becoming clearer is that um, there's you know a bit of a hierarchy of, of guys who are probably more comfortable leading because not everybody is, um, and who have the respect of the group in that position as well. So so that's good that we've got a core group now Um, Yeah, and and now I'm in a position where I'm I'm comfortable that there are two or three players I can turn to because I could announce as captain tomorrow and then somebody's injured before the end of the season so I think it's better to wait anyway um, and and just be ready but it's really important to me that we have, I mean I know you had a really strong group of senior players and that was part of why you were successful as a team I I imagine.
6: What would you say do you feel when we look back over the years, the leadership character, that role has changed, not just from like how you're saying about um, divvying it out, but in terms of the character of the leader, it doesn't necessarily have to be that one that talks all the time.
0: No, I think um, I think it, it's like managers, you know, different types of managers you can see in the Premier League. Um, they're all different characters, but they've all had success in their own way. You've got to be authentic to yourself. doesn't mean that one guy who's a bit quieter um, wants to win any less than the guy that's jumping up and down on the touchline all the time. So, um, so I think leadership in, in businesses in uh, in any walk of life is is changing definitely. <laughs> um, but um, but there are you can see in the league you know characters like company still stand out at Man City because I think everybody across the league looks at everything. and think mm, there's certain traits that he's got, that he's got the respect of the group, you know physically he's going to put his body on the line and and those characters inevitably, um, I think, earn the respect of the dressing room.
6: But we're going to the next question because it says actually for you Gav, what was your day-to-day activities, what did they look like as a manager, but particularly when there are no England games?
0: Yeah, people think, I just, I don't know what they think of (laughs) the... But uh, honestly, I do do
6: Um, (laughs) (laughs) things.
0: So, um, there's obviously, um, you know, our most important... What is our most important thing to cover? Really the form of the players, um, which players are are playing at the level we need. So that's why we we watch as many live matches as we can. And when we're not at live matches, we get all the other matches on video that we can download and and get pretty instantly. There's then the preparations for the senior team camps. So we have, you know, logistically it's a it's a massive operation. Um, Not just how we want the team to play and um, piecing together video of our opposition analysis. So we've we've already done all of the three teams we play. Um, How we want to play. You know, additional focus on our set plays and um, patterns of play. Um, The physical side of training. so constant updates with the clubs. Um, so I go to visit the players at the clubs or the club managers quite a bit. Um, so there's lots of internal planning meetings. Then there's almost another part at St. George's where because we've got all of the national teams there, I think it's really important that as the senior manager, I've got well, I've got more than an interest in all the development teams. So I sit in, um, for example, obviously our under-17s are coming here to play for their finals. Um, when they got back from their World Cup, they did a debrief of the whole tournament. I sat in on that <coughs> with Steve Holland because we wanted to know things that we could learn from those tournaments um, because you're always picking up small bits of information, but also who are the best players, who are the players that might come through to us, what's what's their personalities like, what, what do we need to know about them. Um, and I think that's why, of course, having been the under-21 manager, but having that link with all the other teams, we've been able to put more young players in because we really believe in them and we know that they can handle the occasion and they've got the technical ability to, you know, it's probably a bit early for some of them, um, but over the next few years, really exciting in terms of the types of players that are coming through. So that that's probably the second part. And then the third part is, you know, as the England manager, you've an ambassadorial and a responsibility to um support you know promote the game, support good causes um, you have a chance to make a difference actually, which is nice and um, I, I think that's also really important. so I try across the week to you know m- the priority the day job is is the senior team but also I think there's responsibility to do those other bits so it, it keeps me pretty busy yeah
6: <laughs> this question for both of you but how important is the support and the role that they will play in Russia?
7: Well, um, I think it's the most important thing to a lot of people. Um, you don't want to come home and feel like you've let people down. Um, I've been in that situation, Gareth, okay? you've been in that situation. It's not a nice feeling, but I don't think that's the reason why we play football. I think, as I you said, you've got to remember who you are, what your ability is, um, and then trust the fact that that's going to come out there on the day. And the fans, out. they'll cheer for you if you're doing it, and they won't if you're not. That's as simple as that. Um, it's as simple as you can put it. Uh, but for me, uh, you know, being amongst players, and discussing it. We always mention that, you know, the fans deserve something. It's we do some time um, to celebrate in our generation and um, you really are important. The thought that you're watching game, you're watching us play, you know, from millions of miles away or thousands of miles away at, a pub or at the home with your kids, you know, we know it means a lot. And we, we do, we really do, you know, put the effort on out there on the pitch. And I just believe, as I said earlier, that the players that we've got now, if they can Know, remember those sort of things and, and play to the best of their ability. We've got our biggest chance. Fans are very
0: important. I, I guess there's two things, two big things for me. One is that we're fans. Mm. You know, when I see the shirt there, the, that was the first shirt I had in 82 um, as a kid. So, you know, I was the one coming home from school watching Brian Robson score after 27 seconds against France. Um, so I had the same dreams that the kids in the room, you know, that, that you've got at home have. Um, all the memories then of England, it was there, you know, the two live games with the FA Cup final and the home internationals at the end of the season. So, um, and I remember in 78, I've got to watch Scotland play because, you know, we haven't qualified. I mean, how disastrous is that? So, <laughs> the, the first thing is I think all of the players are fans. And, and I think sometimes we kind of forget that because we're in the kit, there's almost an assumption they're not fans, but a lot of our guys have been to tournaments before with their, with their parents oh. or with their mates. I think Harry Maguire was at the last Euros with his mates. And so again, I think it's, we've said to the guys, you've got to get that message across because you know, people don't realize how much that it means to you. And then the other part is the understanding of how you know, the commitment of supporters to travel Um, and not you know just home games to get to Wembley is is difficult and you know really conscious of that that's one of the reasons we're trying to take the team on the road again Um, because I think we both played at a time when the team was on the road when Wembley was being built and that was great to take the team to other cities um, for you know it is the people's team and you know Wembley is it's the best feeling to play at Wembley, but actually to go on the road and play was really, really special because every city, there was a new energy to it. It felt important for that city to have England there. Um, So we're obviously doing, we're going to Leeds this summer. Um, There's plans to um, hopefully do that again next season as well with um, taking the team elsewhere. Uh, But, you know, we really understand how much um, effort, time, money people put into traveling. And we know that you're not guaranteed that we perform. So, you know, it's a, it's a massive, it's almost an unconditional commitment from everybody. And that's hugely respected. But when we see the supporters there and our fans, you know, at away games are unbelievable. You know, it's a, a huge lift. Um, so, it does mean a lot to the team to see them and to hear them during the games. And those tough moments in games when they're with you is a really important part.
6: I have to do it, it's a question, so I have to read it out. But we're going to talk about (laughs) penalty shootouts, okay? This one's to both of you. Given your experience with penalty shootouts whilst representing England, how difficult is it to fully prepare yourself for shootout conditions at a major tournament? And have you been practising?
1: UK.
7: Um, (laughs) Yeah, it's very difficult in the heat at the moment. Um, To get your head round, you're going to have to take a penalty. For me personally, uh, that was very difficult. Um, But at at the end of the day, you've got to, well, I miss, so you don't have to do what I I say. (laughs) But uh, you've got to prepare yourself correctly. Um, You've got to be, I don't know what you do now, Gareth. I think you do have to practice penalties. There's a lot of debate about that, whether you can recreate the situation that you're going to be in. Um, But I believe that if you get used to, you know, taking penalties, and that ball hitting the back of the net, and and the ball going where you want it to go, I think that you're in in the better position to take one. during the match. I took it a different way. I was one of those that um, I think was on the bench during my situation where I came on and it went to penalties and I, I came on during extra time. I remember thinking to myself, well, oh, it might go into penalties. Um, I haven't practiced. Okay, I know what I'll do. I'll make sure it doesn't go into penalties and I'll go and score my goal and get us through. So I tried try to use that as um, <laughs> motivation. It didn't quite work out. It went into penalties and, uh, <laughs> and it came to me. So, yeah. Um, it was what it was. Um, unfortunately, I missed, but I'm proud that, of the fact that I stuck to my decision. I didn't change my mind. The penalty went where I wanted it to go. The goalkeeper guess right on my occasion.
0: Yeah, we, um, when we had the shootout in '96, obviously not as many games went to shootouts. Um, the, the tournament in '90 did. Um, but FA Cup <laughs> ties, for example, went for three or four replays. You know, they just went on and on and on. So, there weren't many shootout experiences really. Um, we did a little bit of practice, but when I look back now at how we might have done it and in the teams that played in subsequently, I don't think we did it we prepared anywhere near enough. And that's not a criticism of the coaches at the time because I said Terry was the best I worked with, but we just weren't sure what preparation could be done. Um, so we've we've already started a couple of projects with the players and with our analysis teams on successful and unsuccessful shootouts. We've analysed um, what happens at the end of a game, um, you know, because uh, how do, it's not even discussed, for example, we've got footage of uh, players who maybe want to be left alone to their own thoughts. We've one of the kit men or one of the other players constantly telling them where they should be diving. There's a brilliant one of Dave James who's just trying to focus on something and he keeps walking away from whoever's giving him advice. So these are things we've got to be clear on. What's what's our roles? Because it can be chaos at the end of a game. Then there's technically, okay, who needs help with practice? Who just wants to be left alone? So Harry Kane, Jamie Vardy, they are regular penalty takers. They have their own routine. They know what they're doing. They're comfortable if there's a delay. Um, They probably don't want too much interference from us. But players like myself who weren't regular takers, we probably need to practice one or two specific penalties so that we've got a couple of options in the bag, make our decision on where we're gonna go. So we're then able to say to them, look, these are the areas of the goal percentage-wise that are, are more successful. These are the areas goalkeepers tend to dive towards. With the goalkeepers, there's lots of things on Can you distract the opponent? Can you study the the Opposition? Where do they go under pressure? So there's actually Goodness me, there's a huge project that that we're in the middle of Um, So for sure we will be preparing um, And we will prepare as, as best we can. Can we exactly replicate what that feels like? Well, no, but The closer you can get to that, the better chance we have of succeeding, I think. So um, it would be foolish for us not to have learned from what's gone in the past.
6: Okay, Okay, Last question, let's turn it around to the exciting stuff. Going into the summer, what is exciting you the most about this team and this tournament?
0: Really um, the potential of the team. Um, I just think there's so many exciting young players coming through. We had a real, real interesting challenge when I took the job because it, the, the manner of getting the job obviously wasn't planned, so as everybody knows. So then you're in the role, and we're we're at the beginning, you know, just after the first couple of games of qualifying campaign. And the most important thing is to qualify. So in your mind, okay, we've got to keep going, and you. You know there are some young players there that you'd like to have a look at, but are they ready and can we put them in yet? Um, and you've got to qualify. Qualifying is so important for the country, um, for, for the experience of all of the players, but also blame me, things like the economy. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a big thing. So, um, so when I look back, I probably was a little bit safe in some of my decision making, which isn't normally how I like to be. When I took the role with the under-21s, it was because I believed that English players can play in a certain way um, that maybe we haven't been able to show in the past. Um, and I think with the junior teams, we started to do that, and um, we qualified, and it was flat. You know, the performances weren't as we hoped, I don't think it was as enjoyable. Um, but also, the team were coming off the back of a real tough experience, psychologically. Um, and the, I think everybody was scarred by that. Um, and also, they um, they had three changes of coach and different ideas. So when, once we'd qualified, it you know we talked during the summer as a coaching staff. Okay, we need two more wins to qualify. Then what's the plan? How do we want to play? Who might be the players that can fit in? And so straight away in Lithuania, we went to the back three. We Put Harry Maguire in for his first game, we put John Stones it back into the middle of the three. And there were certain things we wanted to start looking at straight away. And then the games in November with Brazil and Germany, and the games in particular in March, the team started to play in a style that I think is representative of what we're trying to look for. Now that's still going to take time because we're four games and 15 days working at that. But that's the way I believe we should play. Um, I think it's important that we have energy and speed and um, technical ability, that we're brave in how we play, you know, I think mistakes will happen, but I want our defenders to play out from the back. It's really important. If we're going to be a successful team in the end and beat the top, top teams, that's what we've got to be able to do. Um, And also we've got to make decisions that if there are some young players that we think over the next four, six, eight years can be world class, which I think they can, and maybe we've got some older players who have maybe got to the, as far as they can, you know, we've, we've started to make those decisions on a few players that I think is the right for the long term, and maybe I see the benefit of that or maybe I don't as the coach because you, you don't know what's going to happen. And But I think for England that's the right thing. And, um, and also underneath this group we've then got more top players coming through who've Won World Cups under 20 and under 17, and you know Darius is working in academy. Uh, we know the quality of players that's coming through, so um, that's that's what we believe. We we want to play um, in an, in an attacking style, and I think again that started to come through against Holland and and Italy. At the moment, we haven't beaten those top teams, so we've got loads still to prove. But the nice thing is that all these. Kids are hungry. You know, they're they're not quite where they want to be. There, they've not won the things at club level that they want to win, and they're probably not scarred by what's gone in in the past because it's okay. What what can we go and achieve? So there's a bit of the uncertainty because under pressure, you know, um, we don't quite know how they're going to be. But also, I'm quite confident that they can handle that. Uh, I'm confident in their ability, and I think we want in the end. I've said. What would be success? Well, I think if we come back and the country's proud of what we've done, we will have had to win a few games because they won't be proud if we lose them, that's for sure. But I think how we play and the way we are as a team and how we represent the country is really important. We've got to show that players aren't disconnected from the fans, that they are fans, that they care about. They've got to play in a, in a style that, that makes people excited and want to watch them.
6: I think we have to leave it on there, that was such a great answer (laughs) but it is, it is going to be such an exciting summer and on behalf of everyone here thank you for all your questions and a huge round of applause for Gareth and Darius
2: (laughs) Once the Q&A was over both Gareth and Darius spent some time with supporters chatting, interacting, photos, autographs and this gave me the opportunity to speak with both of them I'd like to welcome Durais Vassell to the Three Lions podcast. Hello, lovely to meet you guys. We've got something in common. My first World Cup game was your first World Cup game in Saitama. England get Sweden. Yeah. What's your memories of that game?
7: Uh, memories are that the national anthem comes to mind, and uh, it's funny that obviously we've just spoke about that here, where we are today. But I remember standing there in the lineup, national anthem singing. I Think Marco Owen. I was up front with Michael Owen that day and uh, first game of the World Cup and that it just uh, I just hit home then. Like I said, that's the moment that you take a little moment well, I took a moment to myself. And um, obviously everybody singing and getting patriotic. I'm doing the same thing, but I'm you know relaxing and getting deep into the moment trying to just realise, you know, how I got here and where it all came from. And it it is a beautiful moment because you know the music's playing, people are singing and you know that it's I won't call it silent because people are singing, but I had silence in myself. And uh, it's just realising where I've come. I mean, I had a brilliant season for Aston Villa that season. And there was talks of me getting into the squad. You know, and it seemed like a long shot. I had people write me off on TV. And I just kept going, just kept it going, kept it going. And there I was, starting the first game of the World Cup, with it all in my hands uh, to go out there and, you know, be one of the main players in the World Cup. And to get myself into that situation, uh, considering... You know, my upbringing, where I'm from. You know how difficult it is, the amount of players, good players that are out there, the odds that were against me. It just, it just was a really nice feeling, and I'm really proud of myself uh, for that. And you're now at the St George's Park setup. Yeah. What, what's your role there now? So uh, I don't actually work there, but they've got a great setup there, as we all know. They put on courses to um, acquire the um, the FA badges. So I was working on my A licence. Um, at the time, I've been there back and forth a couple of times to get my licences, but the latest one was my A license, and I was fortunate in, enough to complete that course. And then now I'm, I need to go out and, and, and get my hours and get my work into, you know, to be a qualified uh, A license holder. Okay. And your thoughts for England for the World Cup? Yep, um, I, I really do believe that they've got every chance. I know that it sounds optimistic, and we probably say the same things every four years, but looking at that squad and knowing that a lot of that team have experienced uh, adversity together um, I feel like that experience in itself will lend its hand to the team being stronger this, this uh, tournament and possibly going a little bit further than we've been before and if that's the case we're talking semi-finals and, and finals and when you get to those stages um, of competition of that magnitude anything can happen you know, you need a little bit of luck or something to go your way. You might have a player come into form at the right time. Uh, you've got a chance of <laughs> lifting up the trophy. So, because of that, I, I think we've got a chance. And it's not just to ask for sell the footballer, the coach. It's to ask for sell the author as well. You've written a book. Yep, thank you for that acknowledgement, yes. Um, I have. I've written a book, an um, uh, autobiography, just to...
3: Um,
7: to draw a line, you no know, under the career, under the career, over the career, whatever we call it, to be able to retire comfortably, having gone through my career, worked out my rights and wrongs, the 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 paths that I took and the reasons why I took them. Um, it was a good experience. It was very uh, uh, brought me down to earth. Um, it was humbling. Um, and I think footballers do find it difficult to retire. I think it, it's difficult. I think one minute you're a football star and, and, and then you've forgotten because if you retire, somebody takes your place from wherever you came from. But I think with me, it was a bit awkward at the time. Um, I wasn't at a club. I was getting phone calls from agents saying, you want to do this, you want to do that. And some of it's very tempting. And I think that um, for myself and my family, um, I needed to draw a line under it and, and just calm down a bit and start to think about the rest of my career. And the book's called The Road to Persia, in reference to your daughter, is that correct? That's right, my daughter um, Persia, she's three and a half years of age, um at the point of writing my book, she she had just been born, you know, she was, you know, learning to crawl, you know, and all of those, those things, but all my teammates, with well, the majority of my teammates, have kids already so they got to experience uh, bringing their kids to matches and stuff like that and um, I wouldn't say that I'm envious, but I just think that my experience of having a child is a little bit different to the people that, you know, I had around me, so I think again, that was another reason why I brought the book out, just to be able to do that with a bit of freedom and do that with a bit of comfortability, knowing that um, I'm entering a different phase, you know, of my life and
0: career.
2: So here we are at Walsall Football Club and I have the uh, the pleasure of interviewing England manager Gareth Southgate here at the England Fans Forum. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us. I could just ask you a couple of questions. Is this the dream job?
0: Um, well, it is an incredible honour. So... Um, I was saying earlier to uh, to the supporters that were here, my dream was to play for England, you know, that was my only goal in life when I was a kid and um, so to do that was the most amazing thing, I, I couldn't say that it was my dream to manage England because I didn't think of managing until I was in my 30s really, so um, but then of course when you are a manager to manage your country is the, is the greatest honour there is possible, so um, now it's now it's a case of, uh, OK, it's, it is an honour, but we've got to do the job as well as we possibly can. So it's important that we, uh, the, the, the detail of how we work and um, the preparation that we put in is spot on.
2: You've obviously come through the the whole England set-up being under-21 manager. Do you feel a responsibility towards those younger players to bring forward?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think... Um, you know, one of the strengths of our current system throughout the age groups is that we are all connected. You know, um, I'll I'll spend as long talking with Steve Cooper, in charge of the under seventeens, as I will with Adi, who's in charge of the under twenty ones. And the beauty is that you know we know all of the young English players, so we know what they're capable of, we know what they're not so good at, we know them as people, um, and it's really important that we. You know, players that we believe in, that we've we've been able to give them an opportunity, and um, we're, we're going to c- continue to do that.
2: And looking back on the the qualifying campaign, what what game, what moment gave you the most excitement?
0: Well, um, I think the game up in Scotland was without doubt the most dramatic. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's it's difficult with the qualifying now. Um, Most of the games we play are games we should win and we play a lot of teams who just want to keep the score down and it doesn't lend itself to a really exciting game. So um, I've got to say I've enjoyed the the friendlies since we've qualified more because it's been a different sort of test and we've been able to develop the team. Um, But certainly the game in Scotland, you know, at 82 minutes you, you think... We've we've been fine. We've not been outstanding, but we're not in a lot of trouble. And then within a minute and thirty seconds, we're we're behind and we look like losing, and uh, the roof's coming off Hamden. So was then then you get the equaliser. So yeah, it was a a game that will live in my memory forever, definitely. Mine too, as well. (laughs) It's a
2: great um, great afternoon. Words for England fans going forward.
0: Um, Well. I think I said to everybody here tonight um, two things really come to my mind one is that um, as players and, yeah. <laughs> and staff involved with the team we are also fans um, you know we, we've we as kids worn the shirts we've uh, grown up following England in the tournaments rushing home from school to watch them play so you know we we were always um, kindred spirits in that sense um, and the other part is that what we recognize is the commitment from people who follow england is is massive you know not only financial which is which is huge um but the time and the effort that people go to um you know to prepare for events like the summer you know takes a lot of uh, of organization and um you know time off of work and time away from family so um you know we we're very conscious of that and appreciative of it and um, we hope that we can repay that in terms of the way that we play and um, that we can give people you know I I think people will hopefully enjoy their trips regardless Um, and if we can get the football bit right then it'll be you know really really memorable
2: Let's hope so. Gareth thank you very much for talking to the Freelance Podcast Uh, the country is all behind you um, and yeah wish you all the very best
0: Thank you So there we
2: are, another podcast wrapped up One that I didn't anticipate would ever happen. So I was very grateful to be given the opportunity. I hope I haven't raised the bar too high for the podcast going forwards, but who knows. Once again, thank you to all that I spoke to on the night for your time. Now I know this podcast has come hot on the heels of the previous one, but don't forget episode 19 is still available to listen to. It's got a great chat with England blogger Dom Smith and his website englandfootball.org. I'll be back soon when we'll be looking forwards to the Nigeria friendly and hopefully looking back over a successful tournament for the under 17s. Don't forget you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, just search Three Lions Podcast. We're on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and your feedback is always appreciated. So if you do get the opportunity, please do leave some nice words. Now I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. If you are going to the next fans forum at Leeds Elland Road on the 8th of May, I hope this has given you a flavour of what to expect. I'll catch up with you again soon.